Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm one of your hosts, Emily. And I'm your other host, Margo. And today we're going to do things a little bit beyond the early 2000s. In fact, we're going to talk about this past decade. More specifically, we saw Pitchfork release 200 greatest albums of the 2010s and then the 200 greatest songs of the 2010s. And there were some interesting picks some controversial some just baffled me and then some I was like oh yeah mostly some omissions that I was like um yeah okay. excuse me as we listened <laughs> as we listened to the pitchfork spotify playlist we were really taken aback by the amount of EDM that was on there just like straight noise just, I know that sounds like an old person thing to say but it really was just like beat 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 yeah. weird woman's voice beat beat it sort of reminded me of like a lesser cnc music factory for but sure it, it's like this this song in particular by unknown dj or dj i am hearing of for the first time beat out any number of other songs which i think have a profound bigger impact on culture and i would also say like four drake songs is like maybe too too many too too many for sure i didn't for think sure. that all of them needed to be on there no. but really no. what i can't believe is that we're like less than 60 days away from the 2010s being over it's it seems like it was just yesterday or 10 years ago or 10 years which ago. feels more like yesterday all the time it really does it really does, because that's what happens when, as you get older with time. Everything, it's like, what? It's November. I thought it was March, and that's just... Because that's it's just still like, hot. It's hot. That's really it. It's hot. It's Bay Area weather. Although this, like, very dark sky right now, because we just uh, entered uh, daylight savings time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I slept through that, which is, like, the only way you can really do it. For sure. For sure. For just sure. get a tight nine hours of sleep. For no reason at all other than it's Sunday and you know what? Whatever. It's fine. I don't have anybody that's going to wake me up earlier than 9 o'clock anyway, so that's great for me. That's good. That's good. Yeah, for me, I, I woke up at, at 8 a.m., but for me it was a victory because I was like, but that's really 9 a.m., so that's good. Oh, nice. Yeah. Wait. It felt good. It went back an hour. So at 1 a.m. last night, we had two 1 a.m.s. Right. This happened last year when I didn't realize that a foreign – I was in Italy and didn't realize that they also did daylight savings, but a weekend after. Uh. And so we were 
out, my husband and I were out at like one o'clock in the morning and we like got back to our hotel. We we're like, ooh, gonna like watch some drag race and go to bed. We we're like, wait, it's still one? We're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, like complete brilliant idiot geniuses. <laughs> I, it's something we just got to do away with. We are no longer farmers. Well, I'm so glad that we voted to let people vote on possibly maybe yes. taking away daylight it's savings. Time. It's time. because we, Well, maybe in 8 to 12 years, Emily, we'll see the day. While we rank Pitchfork's <laughs> best, 200 best songs of tw- the 2020s. Well, I think beyond... This also being, you know, us commenting on Pitchfork's selection or lack of selection. Because it'll be a little bit of both. We picked eight of our favorite songs, respectively, from the 200 list. And then added our own staff picks as if we were running the Empire Records of Pitchfork's 200 of 2010. But this is also our finale for the season. Season Not like a series, but a season finale. Season finale. It's exciting. I think this this season we had 14 episodes instead of 10. I'm feeling really good. I'm excited for what 2020 will bring. Um, But I think this is a nice end to this chapter. But the rest of 2019 will definitely bring a couple of mini episodes. So make sure you are subscribed to the speed if you are interested in hearing. We'll cover Pitchforks. Pitchforks. See? It's not easy. I, (laughs) as I had said earlier... It's not easy to say quickly, or at all, quite frankly. And no. I don't really know who landed on this name, but it took... Someone in Chicago. It took four people with college degrees the other day to come up with a very short tagline, and I've never laughed harder in my life. Anyway, <laughs> we'll be doing a mini about their uh, 200 best albums, yep. which <laughs> I don't know why that will take less time than a singles episode, but... We'll do that. We'll talk about some Hallmark and Netflix holiday movies. So excited. We'll do some more year-end retrospective stuff. Maybe a little preview of Disney+. Plus. Maybe a little Lizzie McGuire nostalgia. Or real. Because we were talking about that at a Halloween party about how we saw the Lizzie McGuire still from the reboot that's happening. I cried a little bit. And we all wanted her outfit. Of course. Hilary Duff looks great. I just want, I love that overcoat yep. over, like, the little business suit skirt combo. It lo- Oh, my God. I want that whole outfit. She just looks great. I Can for- she do another collab, but instead of this time with Limited 2, it's with Madewell? Or, like, Glasses USA. I think that's No, don't do Glasses ones. USA. That was one of the ones she did for a while. Well, that's her personally. I meant, like, you know how Lizzie McGuire oh, yeah, did the Lizzie line. Lizzie McGuire, yeah. Oh, you bet. There probably will be. It has. Guess, there has to be a Madewell or a Zara, H&M, like Target? Yeah, or Target, <laughs> our prime for that. Because, like, the last big one I can remember was uh, Banana Republic did a Mad oh, right. one, like, ten years yeah, ago. Yeah, but all of their pieces were terrible. They were awful. Like, the regular Banana Republic stuff looked oh, more exactly. like Mad oh, Men. Like, like, I bought a very Joan Grey pencil dress that season that was not a part of that collection see of course and i just feel like you could find better mad men stuff if you just wandered off the street into a thrift store that too than what they made that that was a truly hideous collection it was very unfortunate wow okay well mad men doesn't have any of the songs that we want but i'm pretty sure (laughs) they've had something to say about mad men in the past so we're gonna try and tie it up that way yeah (laughs) That's, that's, yeah. What's your first? What number does yours come in? Um, mine comes in at 177. Okay, so maybe I should start because mine is kicks off the whole thing at 197. Oh, perfect. So I chose Icona Pops, I Love It from 2012. 
I fucking love this song. Why isn't it higher on the list? I don't know, but to be quite honest, I am surprised it even made the cut at all, even though... So I'm not really quite sure. I didn't go in and read any of the blogs around how they ended up dwindling down to this exact list and why songs are ranked a certain way. I didn't really have enough time to go through that, and quite frankly, it's kind of more fun to just speculate anyway. It's yes. a harmless conspiracy theory. So I'm not really sure... But I'm, not, I'm sure it's to some extent sort of like Oscar contenders. It's a mix of indie cred, what critics have said, oh, right. how well it's done commercially, or how well it hasn't done commercially over expectations. Because sometimes it can be like how it, how it flopped amazingly, and that's kind of its own story. And sometimes I think that they do really want to go for the like, oh, we've got our ear to the streets, we're cool, we're hip. And so I think that there are a couple like pandery ones in there. Yeah. But and I don't think Icona Pop is one of the pandery ones. I actually think it's one of the few that they got spot on, although I do agree with you, the ranking is kind of off. I Love It is two and a half minutes of pure pop payoff. The beat drop barely builds into a beat drop before you're already launched off into space, barely giving you enough time to catch your breath to start scream singing, I don't care, I love it. It's, at the time, was penned by an up-and-comer named Charlie XCX. <laughs> And it was delivered to the Swedish twosome that make up Iconopop by producer Patrick Berger, whose credits include, later on down the list, Robin's Dancing on My Own. Iconopop mm. is a Swedish electro-pop duo that was formed by, oh, oh man, I tried to look up pronunciations for these names, and I couldn't find much help, so here we go, in the words of Mario. <laughs> Caroline Hijet and Aino... Wow, these are my best guess. I'm gonna go by their first names going forward, or just calling them a duo, just so you know, because I'm not gonna venture into this. They're just Iconopop, right? So Iconopop grew up in Stockholm, and they attended the same music school in Stockholm, but they didn't meet till later on by chance at a party in February of 2009, and then they formed their group. Four weeks later, they had written enough songs for their very first performance. They've described their music as something that you can both laugh and cry to at the same time. So, I Love It was originally written for Charlie X by herself, but she ended up just contributing vocals and otherwise gave it to their mutual producer, Patrick Berger, who passed it along to Icona Pop. When he played it for them, they immediately fell in love and they approached Swedish producer Style of Eye to make it more of like a rougher, more punky version. They wanted the fuck it feeling to really come across, which it fully does. It was released in May of 2012 as a digital download in Sweden, where it peaked at number two on the singles charts. The song was added to their debut studio album, Iconopop, as well as their EP, Iconic. And then it ended up becoming this international debut album, which is sort of similar to what we have seen with like Backstreet Boys and stuff, where they end up combining oh, right. like, two albums into mm -hmm, one big mm -hmm. album to release in the U.S., which we all now know is this is dot 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 Iconopop. The song received positive reviews from music critics. Rolling Stone and Pitchfork included it on their end-of-year lists in 2012, and the song went on to become Iconopop and Charlie XCX's first U.S. hit, peaking at number 7 on the Billboard Hot 100. It is certified double platinum, selling over 2 million copies in the U.S., and has gone on to sell 4.3 million copies slash downloads, however. I mean, it's obviously not physical copies. These are all, like, in-the-air cloud download things. Thanks to I Love It being featured on an episode of Girls, 10 days later, it entered into the Hot 100 charts and climbed up to number 7. The song was Icona Pop and Charlie X's breakout song, and it was the first hit in the U.S. for the both of them. The song was a huge success for Charlie, who would later go on to feature on another insanely runaway success song 
with Iggy Azalea Fancy. Today, I Love It is Iconopop's biggest hit. I don't really know. I have like, I have a space for all of my thoughts on these songs at the end, but I feel like I sort of set it up at the beginning at this point. It's a great, super catchy song. It still holds up today because I think what a lot of the songs that I've picked have in common, especially the pop songs, are that they benefit from having simplistic lyrics and and just going full force on what they know to do best, which is just like high beat, high energy, scream, sing, something that you can really... In there a lot are of like ways, twenty words to this song. There, yes, I, that's that's it. It's easy to memorize. It takes two listens, and then you know every word. Yeah, I think the most complicated turn of phrase is "I smash my car into the bridge." <laughs> You're from the seventies, but, but I'm, I'm a nineties bitch. Which one of the women from Iconopop said that she personally identified with in terms of a past relationship? Which I was like, would love to hear more about that. Yes. <laughs> relationship for some reason never did edm address a may december romance (laughs) dennis quaid and peter cook ain't got shit on icona pops i love it gavel bang (laughs) all right emily my pick number 177 is a tribe called quest the space program this is the first song off the rap group sixth and final album We Got It From Here, Thank You For Your Service, which was released November 11, 2016 on Epic Records and was recorded in Q-Tip Studio in his home in New Jersey. His studio is known as the Ab Lab, as in Q-Tip the Abstract. Fun fact. So deep. So deep. This was the final album the group released, and it was the first album that they had released since 1998's The Love Movement. It was during this time that the group had split due to issues amongst the members, There had been rumors that the group would get back together because they had appeared together during Kanye West's Yeezus tour a couple years prior, and then they performed on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon on November 13th, 2015. The group then decided to start secretly recording to see what would happen. Initially, Five Dog thought it would just be an EP. R.I.P. I know, so I'm going to get into that a little bit. So they got together and they started realizing they had a lot of great material and were working really well, and in fact... It was Q-Tip and Five Talk who got to work together for those first four months. So they spent those months working together on the album, and DJ Ali Shaheed Muhammad could not work on producing the album with them at the time because he was working on the Luke Cage soundtrack for the Netflix show Oh, with co-producer Adrian Young, who I originally was like the drummer from No Doubt, but no, it was another <laughs> Adrian Young. I was really hoping that that was I, the case. I actually thought that's where you were going. I was like, whoa, connection. we've had so many good ones this season, but this, uh, alas, a much like our Mike Nichols from... Mike Nichols, not that Mike Nichols. Not that Mike Nichols. This is Adrian Young, not that Adrian Young. <laughs> Got it. Unfortunately, during the time the group was recording the album, Five Dogs' uh, diabetes had gotten to a really bad stage, and he was commuting from California, actually in Contra Costa County, to New Jersey to record the album and was receiving dialysis three times a week. And he would later pass away from complications from his diabetes on March 22nd, 2016. He passed away like five days after my mother-in-law and was making it an extremely emotional time. That was a year though. That 2016 was, that was the year every like, every musician died. Is and that the same year that Bowie died? Yeah, and that's yeah. going to come up later because I, I did Black Star. Yeah, you um, picked a lot of R.I.P.s I up did. in there. 
Oh, God. My friend referred to that year as the talent rapture, but it was true. I mean, like, every week there were three new musicians who died. This is true. The like, consequence of sound or, like, one of those uh, blogs did a, a parody article. It was, like, rock legend animal dead at 75, <laughs> and it was a Muppet. Animal. That's fucked up. But it was... That's I to mean, the onion. I mean, yeah. did you ever watch Michael Rappaport's documentary on Tribe Called Quest? I did, yes. And that was a... It was a really interesting view because it happened all before they considered releasing this album started on this album i mean based on this documentary you definitely felt like this album was a miracle yes yeah because i mean the tensions between fife and q-tip were very high so tense and it, the whole time you're just like you're friends you're just friends. be friends you created some of the most important hip-hop touch smiles exactly <laughs> and it was just unfortunate um and of course fife talked a lot about his diabetes like in the song oh my god from midnight marauders he mm -hmm. says when's the last time you heard a funky diabetic and Q-Tip would go on to finish the album. That's also his, like, sub-nickname is The Funky Diabetic. The, the Funky Diabetic. Q-Tip would go on to finish the album along with help from member Jerobi White, who would come back for this album. And it was his first album since People's Instinctive Travels and The Paths of Rhythm, which was their big breakthrough album in, like, 1990. This is one of two songs that I picked that deal with the final releases before or after an artist's death. Though this is not one of the songs that was a single off the album, it's a powerful opener to, for a long overdue final act from a group that ended up inspiring a generation of artists who actually ended up making appearances on this album, including Kendrick Lamar, Anderson Pock, Andre 3000, Talib Kweli, and Kanye West. And that's pretty much what I have to say about this. It's a really beautiful opener. That album is a really great album. Um, it's just really sad that it was released, you know, months after Five Dog died, but Anyway, I just felt like it was necessary to include. I'm glad that you... I put it on there when I did the shortlist, assuming that you would take it since you're a big Tribe fan. I am. So I'm glad that you did something because, you know, I don't. it's not that I didn't want to do it. It's just that I have a lot of rap on my initial picks, and one that made the cut was number 158, Walk a Flock of Flame, Hard in the Paint from 2010. 2010's Flocka Valley was my introduction to Waka Flocka, and I was immediately impressed with his sort of, like, old-school Rough Rider style. Like, in this instance, instead of Rough Riders, it's Brick Squad! <laughs> he came across as, like, a millennial DMX. Yeah. In one breath, he'd be, like, rapping, bragging about how he's got a main bitch, a girlfriend, and a mistress. But by the end of it, he's talking about how he said fuck school after his brother tragically died. Plus, he's a frequent collaborator of Gucci Mane, so, like, what was not to like about Waka Flocka when you first met him? So Waka Flocka, a.k.a. Joaquin James Malfers, got the nickname from his cousin after the Muppets character Fozzie Bear's catchphrase, Waka Waka. That's amazing. And the name Flocka Flame was given to him by Gucci Mane, who he's known since he was 19. He signed to 1017 Brick Squad and Warner Brother Records in 2009, and he became a mainstream artist with the release of Ole Do It. I, I'm sorry, I like I cannot actually say it that way. I have to sing it the of way course, that he sings it. Of course. Hard in the Paint, similar to Ole Do It, was originally a mixtape track. And it first appeared on his fourth mixtape entitled LeBron Flocka James. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh my gosh, which I don't know. <laughs> that gets me every time. It was released in October of 2009. The track was produced by up-and-coming producer Lex Luger, who he shouts out at the beginning. It's like, my man Lex Luthor, which I thought for the longest time was Lex Luthor. And I was like, oh, there's a rap producer named Lex Luthor? Interesting. I wonder if it's like <laughs> after a Smallville or what's it, what's his story? What's his deal? 
And it went on to become an underground hit before it was released as a commercial single off of his, uh, off of Flock of Valley. And it came out commercially as a part of Warner Brothers officially on May 13th. It's the second single off of Flock of Valley, and it's sandwiched between Bingo and No Hands. No Hands will go on to peak at number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. An early remix of Heart in the Paint features French Montana, who is also part of Brick Squad. And it was released in April and appeared on his mixtape later on that was released in May. I don't know. These, like, mixtape remixes, I just always feel like it's someone trying to, like, hop on the track. It's yeah. like, you weren't invited. And no one really cares about your remix that much. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is about this song. I think it really is the bravado and how he can go from being, like, got a main bitch and a mistress. But he can also rap emotionally about how... He felt like shit when he lost somebody close to him, and that's why he got into this, like, drug game that led to the rap game. I really like him, and I really love the end of Harden the Paint, where he goes full Dylon, where he just starts essentially scattering, waka, flucka, waka, flucka, flucka, waka, flucka, flucka, flame, waka, and it's just like, I don't know, it's like hilarious and insane, and I have to feel like he's in on the joke a little bit. And No Hands is obviously, like, a great song, but Harden the Paint is like a pump-me-up, like, I'm ready to, like, fight and then cry afterwards. It's it's a great song. I enjoy a lot of Waka Flocka's oeuvre, but a lot of uh, whatever is on Flocka Valley is, like, truly standout rapping. And a great debut. Excellent pick. My fantasy team one year was Waka Flacco Flame. Oh, we're, no. We were Emily. just watching the Ravens before this. <laughs> Who yeah. I think might have beat the Patriots now. That's good. Yay. So at 144 is Spoon's Inside Out from 2014. There really isn't much to report here because Spoon is a workhorse band that have been together and been playing since the 90s. But I always think it's a treat to see them covered in lists like this because I don't think that enough people know who Spoon is. Obviously, true heads know, but I, I feel like I say Spoon to people and they're like, what? It's it's strange. Well, given like the amount of EDM on this list, it, it's good because it's probably a lot of young people looking at this pitchfork list, and so they'll be like, who's Spoon? And maybe they'll check them out because of that. So that's good. And I know Gaga Gaga Ga was from 2007, so there's no way that that could be entered in this list. But I think next to that album, They Want My Soul is as close to a commercial hit as they can possibly get. It's like a good entry point. So Inside Out is the second single off of Spoon's 2014 album, They Want My Soul. Its lyrics use an extended metaphor about gravity, a girl, and why she matters more to him than fans, or as they're referred to in the song, Holy Rollers. It was released in August of 2014 through the band's newest label, Loma Vista Recording, and it's the band's first album to feature new member Alex Fischel, who plays keyboard and guitar. The band took several years in between the release of Transference in 2010 and They Want My Soul in 2014, giving each member time to explore and start other projects. Britt Daniel, the front man, goes on to start a whole other band with a couple of people from Wolf Parade called Divine Fits, which I will talk about later on. And they even released an album in 2012 called A Thing Called The Divine Fits. But because they had been essentially touring nonstop since, I want to say, 2001, they were all feeling a little bit burnt out. So they took, you know, four years in between Jim Eno went on to go produce albums for other bands. Rob Pope toured with his other band, The Get Up Kids, and Eric Harvey uh, released a solo album. Obviously, They Want My Soul received universal acclaim from music critics, and I believe was also nominated for a couple of Grammys, but I didn't include that because I, 
you just get like glowing reviews and amazing stats. It's just like it, they're never going to be like a Billboard Hot 100 band, and I don't think they really care to be either. Spoon is sort of like that Austin ev- garage rock band that's like a little bit psychedelic. They've got some sort of like I don't want to say like fish influence because that's not really what I mean, but they have like a following that's sort of similar, which are like a weird band of diehard fans people like myself that will go see them anywhere at any point in time because they're a really solid live band i feel like there's a lot of crossover in the fans between spoon and probably cake you know and modest Mouse. yes those are like the three that i don't I know about of... modest mouth definitely cake yeah and i mean with rage reuniting i also think there's like that whole i, I cannot think that... believe it's good show <laughs> it's going to be i, I feel like i t- i told my husband because we met at coachella watching Rage Against the Machine during their final tour in 2007. I, was, I texted him. I was like, it's full circle. They're reuniting and they're going to Coachella. It's insane. It really is. I can't fucking believe it. But yeah. um, I feel like they have like similar demos of fans like around the same age who kind of got into them in like a mixtape way or you heard them on the OC or whatever. Yeah. But they're a really solidly consistent band, so I'm glad that they get a little bit of credit. They got a lot of credit, especially with They Want My Soul. Like I said, it was a little it was one of the more like commercially accessible albums that they'd had in a long time. But my parting thoughts are I disagree with the initial pitchfork author's take about what the song's about. They had said it was about like psyched like having like a meditation, coming to like a zen like state about like where you are in your life. I think it's actually like a love song that uses metaphor to create atmosphere. And it's not even my favorite song, If They Want My Soul. That's Do You. That's definitely their most romantic and consistently visceral evoking song. And it's so dreamy and perfect. I love that song so much. But all in all, a great album. And I guess I'm going to keep talking because I have 109 Drake's Nice For What from 2018. Drake gave everyone what they didn't even know that they wanted last summer when he sampled Lauryn Hill's classic X Factor, mixed in a little bit of Big Frida, and then we got Nice For What. As often as he's dismissed as making music for girls, the rapper actually did good for once in Nice For What when he celebrated women. Although I do have a little bit of a problem with this song in the sense that I thought that he was pandering a little bit. Nice For What is off of Drake's fifth studio album, Scorpion. Yes, the very album where he tells it, tells us that he is a deadbeat dad. Released as the second single on April 6th, it was also accompanied by a music video directed by Karina Evans, and it had a cast of very accomplished, beautiful, amazing women like Misty Copeland, Tracy Ellis Ross, Olivia Wilde, Tip Haddish, Issa Rae, the list goes on, um, Yara Shahidi, just so many women. It debuted at number one on the Billboard charts, and replaced Drake's own God's Plan, becoming his fifth number one single. It also topped the UK singles charts. It became his second number one song of 2018 in two countries at the same time, after God's Plan. So, it was just like, I remember last year you could not fucking escape Drake at all between God's Plan and Nice For What. It was getting so much radio play, and it was just charting fucking everywhere and breaking all sorts of fucking records. And he was just even more of a monster because Toronto also won that year. (laughs) I mean... I'm surprised Drake didn't fucking explode as soon as, like, the clock hit midnight on December 31st of 2018. Because he had a fucking bang-up year. He really... I don't know how he's going to top that. He hasn't really quite... 2019 was when the Raptors won, right? They won last year. Well, I mean, they won, like, the 2018-2019 playoffs. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, yes, But they were doing so well... I'm just surprised he hasn't burst into flames. Just yeah, like true. Between all of, like, his musical success and the Raptors, even though Kawhi has now since left, I mean, also, like, 
2019 have been like the longest two years of all time. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. He replaced himself. That's on some Mariah Carey shit. So after Nice For What replaced God's plan on the Billboard Hot 100, it made him the first artist to have a new number one debut replace their former number one debut. And that is the time that Drake thought was the perfect time to tell everybody the title of his fifth studio album was going to be Scorpion and it was going to come out June 29th, 2018. In addition to sampling Lauren Hill, it also features clips and samples from the likes of Showboys with Drag Rap, also Get Your Roll On by Big Timers, and also features clips slash a performance from Big Frida. Nice For What topped the Hot 100 for four consecutive weeks before it was replaced in May by Childish Gambino's This Is America, but then it comes back. Arguably, this was a very good summer banger. You only appreciate it when you don't get one like we did this year. I mean, it's Drake. He's always going to be problematic, but as long as he pumps out the hits and we can kind of, like, put his behavior in the rear view, I'm fine with it. What yeah. do you want? I mean, I think that this and Hotline Bling were, like, the only justifiable entries. The other ones yeah. that they have in here were sort of like, okay, come on now. I agree with that. I put Hotline Bling in my honorable mentions for that reason. I mean, I, ca- I physically cannot listen to that song one more time. No, no, no. Unlike Nice For What. But I do love the video, so I can watch that on mute. Or, like, I love all the memes that it sparked. That is exactly why I picked it. It's just the online culture that it inspired. It was that, and then uh, In My Feelings, which I'm also surprised didn't get an entry in here, but whatever. Anyway, we're going to move on to my next pick, which was 102 Katy Perry Teenage Dream from 2010. I really don't have strong feelings about Katy Perry's music or her, honestly. But I do have strong feelings about Teenage Dream. I think it's probably her best most timeless, least problematic upon reflection song. For sure. I think it's because it's one of the few times that she dropped her whole fucking shtick and just made a good pop song. Similar to what we had talked about with Icona Pop, it's just a simple song. Like, she doesn't try and make it more complicated than it needs to be. She just makes the song. It, it just, like, it has a simple narrative. You can follow it. It's pretty easy. Teenage Dream was released as the second single from her third studio album of the same name on July 23rd of 2010. For Teenage Dream's writing sessions, Katy Perry and Bonnie McKee had a forever young idea in mind. Katy Perry first wrote a lyric about Peter Pan, but they later thought it was too young. In a different version, the lines, and the next thing you know, you're a mom in a minivan were in there, but they took that out. Then there was a final version, or like a second to final version, that was based around a metaphor about trying me on and comparing clothes to sex. In a similar way that like Madonna does in uh, Dress You Up. It was rejected by the producers, which were, unfortunately, Dr. Luke and Benny Blanco. <laughs> I know, like, I almost feel like being, like, redacted producer accused <laughs> of sexual assault, the accusations of which I fully believe. It was rejected by them because they're fucking misogynistic dickheads. But McKee went on to explain in an interview later on that Luke is always trying to make things, quote-unquote, Benny-proof, Benny Blanco. He says that if Benny doesn't get it, then America won't get it, which, like, what a fucking douchebag response. Blanco then, in turn, showed them the teenager's 2007 song, Homecoming, and asked them to write in a similar style, which, like, I vaguely even recall that song. So they were trying to top... It was that French band, right? The teenagers? I feel like if I played it for you, you'd recognize it, and then I would also remember it because I'm having a really hard time. It's, like, on the the edges of my brain. I definitely saw them at some festival once and heard this one song and was like, cool, great, and then just left. (laughs) It's not like they were known for much else. Okay. Anyway, so they met with Max Martin in Santa Barbara and started writing the track at Playback Recording Studios, and they would go on to create what what Perry would later describe as something reminiscent of her youth while contemplating her future and her marriage to Russell Brand, which, like, what a dark time to be creating this song. Oh, yeah. Little does she know. 
During one session, after Perry had recorded her vocals and the key presented her idea to change the chorus from the try me on line to the skin tight jeans line. And then that's when like everything about the song clicked. Musically, Teenage Dream is just a mid-tempo pop song with a retro sound, and it is styled in the genres of, like, power pop and electro pop while taking influences from other genres like disco and pop rock. But Perry starts the song in a high-pitched voice, and her vocals grow stronger as the song progresses. Lyrically, Teenage Dream is all about being with a lover who makes you feel young again. During an interview in June while promoting Teenage Dream, Perry confirmed that this was going to be the second single and said that the song was... Kind of like feeling that way when you were a teenager, really emotional, really invested. It's intense being in love and being a teenager. The song topped the Billboard Hot 100, becoming Perry's third number one single on that chart and the second consecutive number one single after California Girls. Teenage Dream has been certified seven times platinum in the U.S., as well as receiving platinum and multi-platinum certifications, obviously, in other countries. Music video for the song was filmed in various locations around Santa Barbara and was directed by... Yoanne Lemoyne, a.k.a. Woodkid. Video showcases Katy Perry being in love with a high school lover and driving on the freeway. And then there's since, obviously, in this past, I think, month or so, some assault accusation on Perry's part that happened during the shooting of this music video that I don't really super want to get into because I didn't quite look it up too much. Ooh. Did you not hear about that? No. Yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to tell you. It's... Yeah. I... She pulled down some pants. She made fun of some people. It's all, like, asterisks, allegedly, uh. allegedly, allegedly. But the only other thing that I have to say about Teenage Dream is Left Shark. That's it. I have quite a few that we're going to go into now. At number 91, I picked Time, The Wire. Yay, I'm glad you did that. I love them. The lead single from their 2013 debut album, Days Are Gone, The Wire begins with the same drum riff as the Eagles' heartache tonight. The Also, that whole album is amazing. And it's Great. You can listen to it anytime. anytime. It's perfect. Anytime. It's also like a tight, like seventy-eight minutes. It's like it's a perfect it's l- album. Less than that, and it's perfect. Like it's, it sets a tone for the sound we've come to associate with this band of three sisters from the valley. Heimson, sorry. <laughs> did you see them dress up as Hanson for Halloween? No, I did not. But Heimson. Oh my god, it's amazing. It's so good. And their new single is really good. Okay, that's I love it. their new single. I love Actually, them they so just much. A second single and it's really good too and I love that they reference all sorts of genres and they came in with that with this single by referencing you have the Eagles riff and then you go into a song that sounds very much like a Fleetwood Mac song from like Tusk that album that came after Rumors oh Um, yes it was released a lot of cocaine on that album production Um, Uh, did you ever see that tweet that was like if cocaine's so bad for you then why is almost everyone from Fleetwood Mac still alive (laughs) that's a very good point the song was released on September 17, 2013 and peaked at number 25 on the Billboard Hot Rock Songs chart and also peaked at number 16 on the UK Singles chart. Heim is made up of sisters Esty, Daniel, and Alana, and they started their careers in a local cover band with their parents called Rockenheim. And later, Esty and Danielle <laughs> so nerdy and would cute. go, I know, and they just played at festivals all around the valley. And when I saw them at the Fillmore a couple of years ago, their parents came out and they jammed. It was amazing. So cute. They, and it was just so adorable. They're, they're so cute. They So Esty and Danielle would go on to be a part of a girl group called the Valley Girls, but Valley spelled like Frankie Valley, that was signed to Columbia Records and had a song on the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants soundtrack huh. and 
the 2005 Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards soundtrack. They were what? really the lead singers in this group. I did some digging on this. They were kind of like the two punk rock girls in the group. I see. Yeah. They were the quote-unquote diversity. Exactly. In 2006, SD Danielle and Alana would go on to start their own group and didn't do much outside of local gigs for their first few years. SD would graduate from UCLA in 2010, and then Danielle graduated from high school, and after that, she was playing drums for an opening act on one of Jenny Lewis's tours, which led Jenny Lewis to ask her to be the guitarist on her following tour. And then she toured with Julian Casablancas when he was doing his solo tour. And then she also toured as part of Scarlet Fever, which was an all-female rock backing band for CeeLo Green. Wow. Yeah. She had this insane career before even being in high school. Yeah, I had an inkling. I mean, she also she's is the lead on... singer. She's on the Vampire Weekend. I was about album. to say she's yeah. great on the Vampire Weekend record, and yeah. then they like popped up on a bunch of dates. Right, right, for sure. But she obviously knows a lot of people already. Absolutely. And then once uh, Alana spent a year in college and then dropped out so that they could be a more formal band. They went on to open for a bunch of people, including Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and Kesha, and they released an EP and then released their LP, Days Are Gone. I don't know how many records it sold because the Wikipedia article would only give me UK and Australian numbers. I'm pretty sure. What? Looking, doing all the Heim research I did, it was all really referencing UK numbers, so I'm pretty sure the biggest UK Heim fan is the one in charge of editing all the ha- Has to be. Yes. That math checks out. Yep. The music video is great as well. Really funny. It's directed by Jonathan Leah, who directed Asher Roth, Blast from the Past. Whoa. Music, Haven't heard that name in forever. The predecessor to Macklemore. Like, let's be honest. He directed But, like, not video. even close to a successful. No, no, no. But, but he definitely song, crawled so that Macklemore could, could run. run. For sure. Um, that song, I Love College, he directed the music video for that. It was a great banger. I enjoyed <laughs> that in college. And Bruno Mars' That's What I Like and served as an executive producer for a whole bunch of videos and live specials. And it also features the Lonely Islands Yorma Tacone among a trio of exes who are being dumped by the Heim sisters and the aftermath, which has them weaving and taking the breakups in a way that's normally reserved for female portrayals in movies slash TV. It's a really good music video. Highly recommend watching it after this. This is a group that has proven time and time again that they aren't ashamed of any of their influences, which is probably the number one reason I love them besides the fact that they always write bangers. They will go from releasing a song heavily influenced by the Velvet Underground's Take a Walk on a Wild Side, that song Summer Girl, to having a Destiny's Child choreography-influenced music video for If I Could Change Your Mind. I think that's what I appreciate about them, is every song has a new little influence. Like today, I listened to their latest single that came out after Summer Girl, and for me, it sounds like a cross after that Donna Lewis song, Always Forever, and a Savage Garden song. And I appreciate the shit out of that, so I salute you, Haim. I have nothing else to say. My next one is number 62 for Rihanna, We Found Love. And so that was released in September 22nd, 2011 as the lead single from her sixth album, Talk That Talk. The song was written, produced, and features Calvin Harris, which is important because this is kind of the beginning of when we start to see a lot more EDM artist collaborations, which are a huge part of the 2010s. This song, along with the several... Especially to make mainstream hits and, yes, ch- and chart yes. like on the Hot 100. On the Hot 100. Like, and not just on like a yes. dance chart or right. like an EDM chart. And this is at a time you start seeing people like Calvin Harris, Avicii, um, Diplo, like all these DJs who were, yeah, strictly EDM. Well, I don't know Diplo. about Diplo. I feel not like Diplo. Because Diplo started with MIA, so that's you're a little right, bit right. different. The, but I would say like like a Tiesto. Yes. I yeah. always struggle. I know with I have to one. remember these names. But yeah, those are Swedish House Mafia. Like a lot of these names that we were really prominent. Yes, that were always kind of like in the background or maybe right. producing stuff, but are now kind of coming up 
and, and becoming their own R and B pop album and becoming their own artist instead Absolutely. of just a producer. So this song, along with several others on that Talk That Talk album, were originally planned as part of a re-release of her 2010 Loud album. Oh. But she later decided to release these as a separate album and kind of keep the Loud oh, thank God. as its own. Yeah, which makes sense. Like, everything on Loud, I think that she made a really smart decision there. I just can't believe that it was going to be something else. Yeah, that it, I mean, it just would have been, like, a lot of artists will do, you know, like a re-release, kind of like we were well, talking Well, Nicki Minaj about, yeah. and, like, Pink Print and, For like, sure. Roman Reloaded. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so Calvin Harris, after being put on the map by this outside of the EDM world, he'll go on to have a very successful solo career, of course, and work will work with Kylie Minogue, Ellie Goulding, Big Sean, among many, many other people. I'm just kind of scratching the surface there. In October 2012, Leona Lewis, this is some like who weekly thing <laughs> that she was originally the first choice to sing that song, but ended what? up losing it to Rihanna when Calvin Harris went touring with Rihanna because... Oh, when it ended up being Rihanna who wanted to do the yeah, song? Yeah, he didn't... I didn't commit to it because I wanted Trouble to be my first single. So I think that was another reason they went with Rihanna. So it was the same version and production, but mine's better. So Leona Lewis claims that her wow, version... Wow, okay, like, girl. All right. All right, Leona Lewis. And then Nicole Scherzinger would later claim that she was given this demo okay. and ended up rejecting it. I feel like Nicole Scherzinger has gotten a lot of demos that we've We'll never see the light, light of day. Of day. Exactly. Or we're given to other bigger pop stars. Exactly. No offense. Yeah. I still think she's a talented singer, but right. I think that, like, she never, never, her solo career never panned out the way that everybody thought, thought it would. It would for, especially being a part talented. of. talented. And Pussycat Dolls. Exactly. The and popularity like, of Pussycat Dolls, the fact that it didn't carry her further is truly surprising. And she was, she's actually a very good singer. No uh, complaints over from me at all. I think right. that she is good. I just, I'm always surprised. No, I agree. That I her agree. career didn't take off. And I, but I also feel like, girl, that's not your song, you know? No, no. And so this song would go on to be number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for 10 non-consecutive weeks. It was the longest number one single in 2011 and broke Rihanna's record for Umbrella. And according to Billboard... That's really saying something because Umbrella was annoying. <laughs> like that one I couldn't listen to for oh, a I, long time. For the, for any, well, maybe for some amount of money, but... Not for a low amount of money could you get me to listen to Umbrella again, unless I'm, like, stuck in a Walgreens. <laughs> it's the 24th most successful single of all time in the U.S., according to Billboard. And as of 2018, that single has sold 20.5 million copies worldwide. The music video was directed by Melina Matsukas, who is best oh, known. Oh, shit! Yes, yeah. So she's best known for directing Beyonce's Diva, Pretty Hurts, and Formation. Which and was, also uh, Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Lady Gaga's Just Dance, Rihanna's S&M, Rude Boy. Gone on to direct episodes of Insecure, Master of None, Handmaid's Tale, and recently came out with her directorial debut, Queen and Slim, which I really want to see. It looks really good. Yeah, that Lena Waithe produced. Um, she and, wrote it too. And she wrote it. And Melina Mansukas has also won two Grammys and four MTV VMAs. Go Melina. She's great. She's fantastic. I really love her eye. I Queen just, and Slim looks really good. I, it looks fantastic. I'm going to support Josh Jackson's girlfriend. I forget her name. I'm so sorry. I will learn it. Jody Turner Smith. Boom. Nailed it. Uh, just like fucking flash. Don't know algebra. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> At 59, we have David Bowie's Black Star. David Bowie just about did the most punk rock thing an artist can do. He decided to announce his terminal illness through an album release. The album Black Star was released on January 8th, 2016, on his 69th birthday, and he passed away from liver cancer two days later on January 10th, 2016. The song mm. that I know, it was very 
I have a quick Bowie side story. We were house sitting for some friends, and across the street, they their neighbors had set up like a Dio de los Muertos like altar, mm-hmm. and they had pictures of like friends and family. Like you could tell they were like friends and family photos. And then there was just one picture of Bowie, and underneath it, it just said "Legend." I love it. <laughs> I, I really warmed my heart. I was like, Bowie transcends. I, everything i have no choice but to stand exactly i was like because my husband's like oh maybe they have like other pop stars i'm like i didn't see prince over there all i said was bowie that's all i gotta say i mean i would put both too but i just i love that it was just like a photo of bowie just says legend caption legend i love it i love it like you said we we stand a household (laughs) the song that the album is named after was released a few months prior in november 2016 was originally over 11 minutes long but after learning that iTunes would not post singles over 10 minutes in length. <laughs> fuck you, iTunes. I, fuck you, iTunes. Bowie and his producer, Tony Visconti, would later edit it to down to 9 minutes and 57 seconds, making it Bowie's second longest track behind Station to Station. It's been described as an avant-jazz sci-fi torch song. And it's like, you hear this song, and it's a very long song that has very different components. Like, it's it's out there, it's interesting, it's different, and just like has all sorts of different genres reflected in its 10 minutes nearly 10 minutes and it was produced by bowie and visconti who produced the entire album he's best known for having been a producer on bowie's entire career beginning in 1968 up until his passing as well as most of t-rex's albums so a lot of glam rock type of 70s music and then black star would go on the song would go on to receive the grammy award for best rock song and the grammy award for best rock performance at the 59th grammy awards and it was, at 9 minutes and 57 seconds, the longest song to ever enter the Billboard Hot 100 charts until Tool broke the record this year. Of course song, it's Tool. Fear Inoculum. The music it's always going to be Tool. The music video is directed by jo- Johan Renk, I believe is how you pronounce it, who's best known for directing episodes of Breaking Bad and a couple of art house oh. films, and also directing... Chernobyl, the miniseries. I didn't watch it. Too depressing. Sorry. I started. I will need to find a really sunny day to watch it. Um, <laughs> for which he won an Emmy. But it was fantastic, the ep- two episodes I watched. There is, in this m- music video, there's a woman with a tail discovering a dead astronaut and taking his jewel-crested skull to an ancient otherworldly town. And there are people who believe that Bowie and Rank kind of left this up to interpretation, but there are many that believe that the astronaut shown in this music video is, in fact, Major Tom, the main character in Space Oddity. And there have also been similarities that have been drawn between Bowie's song and Elvis Presley's song, Black Star, which contains lyrics, quote, when a man sees his Black Star, he knows his time has come. Uh. Or his time, dot, dot, dot. That's all I really have to say. It's personally, I think the album itself altogether is just a really beautiful work. The song itself outside of it is great as well, but altogether I think really paints this great picture. And I have to respect someone who decided that his his exit, you know, in life, if you will, would be this kind of final album and kind of sad to listen to now, but I just appreciate that. And I am going now into Taylor Swift. Wow, what a swerve. What a swerve. But this is a really sad song about Taylor Swift. So, like, you know, I guess it keeps going. Staying in line. No. Yeah. Um, I know. I know. 
So I number fifty seven, Taylor Swift's All Too Well made my list. But there It was just also a strange choice, I think. No, I understand why they picked it. It is it is the indie rock critics like across the board. Really? Because I thought thought anything off of nineteen eighty nine was gonna be a critic fave. It's good stuff. It is very good stuff, but All Too Well is the one song that as this writer puts it, and like every single like rock critic has put this, this is her best song because it showcases the best of her writing. I think 1989 had some more interesting production. I think it's a bit more cohesive of an album than Red, mm-hmm. which I like, but there are bits and pieces you're like, the fuck? Um, but, <laughs> but I appreciate this song because I am not a diehard Swifty or anything like that, but I will defend Taylor Swift's songwriting capabilities. But that. not her vocals. No, and I don't think she, I've said this uh, time and time again, I think that she pitches her songs too high for her range. I think that she needs to pitch them down because she doesn't have a bad voice, but she doesn't have a good belting voice. She's not Mariah. No, she's not. Or Ariana Grande. I also don't like that she gets a lot more recognition and fame than many of her contemporaries, oftentimes, you know, women of color and other artists who have been passed up. Um, and there are several problematic things with her act. But I will continue to say that she writes excellent pop songs, and I think one day, if she no longer can sell records as a musician, that she will make a lot of money still from her own royalties and the royalties of selling songs to other artists. I don't think we'll ever really see that day. I think it's more if she feels like she's done making her own music. You're absolutely right. All Too Well, this song, is probably her best song that showcases this ability. The album Red was released on October 22nd, 2012, and this song was never actually a single on the album. It was written by her and her frequent collaborator, Liz Rose. The two have written 20 of her released singles. Though it was never released as a single, it has become the song people always reference when pointing out why she deserves to be taken seriously as a songwriter. Recently, she performed on NPR's Tiny Desk concert series, which I love. And while her other songs were all from her newest album, Lover, she decided to end her performance with this song because it is one that she still considers one of her favorites and appreciates that her fans and other people have come to recognize how hard she worked on this song. The original song was over 10 minutes. It was one of the (laughs) hardest ones to write on the album for her. And she worked with her writer to kind of pare it down to 5 minutes and 28 seconds. But ultimately... I think this is a great song. I think this is a great showcase of her songwriting abilities. Again, I don't think Taylor Swift has done anything really to move the needle from a um, music perspective. I don't think there's anything there where I'm like, oh my God, this is a game changer. But I do want to, you know, give her credit where credit is due. And I do think she has done a really good job with her songwriting. And that is all. I also have at number 48... Ariana Grande's Thank You Ness. This song was released in November 3rd of 2018 with no announcement whatsoever, apart from a mysterious tweet the day before after her ex-fiance, Pete Davidson, <laughs> joked about their broken engagement on Saturday Night Live. The song was co-written with Taylor Parks, who also co-wrote Seven Rings and Panic at the Disco's High Hopes. I saw her when she opened for Lizzo earlier this year, and she was awesome. She also played Little Inez in the movie version of Hairspray in 2006. Sorry. Oh. Starring Nikki Blonsky of the movie Hairspray. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. She's I also really didn't know that she had her own um, 
had her own separate singing career. Yeah, yeah. She's done very well for herself as a songwriter, and I mean, obviously opening for Lizzo. I don't know if she, I don't that's think not she, nothing. That's no, nothing. Uh, I think I, f- I forget who else is who's opening for Lizzo right now, but it's not her. She was fantastic. Every decade. Oh, Empress of. Okay, em- sorry. <laughs> sorry, I had coworkers see Empress of, and they're like, I don't know, it's kind of weird. <laughs> Every decade has its, whoa, they were together couples. Did you think Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson is that to us? For this decade, I think it's one of them. Do you think that's like our um, our Julia Roberts and like Simply Red? <laughs> oh, yeah, our Julia Roberts and Lyle Lovett. Maybe, and like also that like is, our Yeah, Janet. Lyle Lovett's Simply Red, right? No, no, different people. Lyle Lovett's a country singer. She has such weird taste. She really does. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And then there was also like Carmen Electra and Dennis Rodman and No, that makes tons of sense after yeah, I did that research. That's your All of that right. makes tons of sense. I'm trying to think of like like an Angelina and a Billy Bob. That's a what? <laughs> Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie maybe. No, that's yeah. just fucking creepy as fuck. That is its own yeah. different situation. I guess I mean truly, I forget which comedian said this, but like Pete Davidson just might have a giant dick. I, I think, think that that's does. the only it's the only common denominator between him and all of these hot women. Like, I don't, like, I, how do you go from Ariana Grande to fucking Kate Beckinsale? I he doesn't have a good person, like, his personality is what? Like, what? He's not that I, funny. I looked at the list today. So he dated, he dated a comedian for a while and went at, he at went, first. He dated Cassie Davis. And then Cassie like, Davis. Who I think is, like, his perfect equal. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. And They're like, the right and, amount yeah, of famous. Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. They're both kind of annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both sort of like, so, oh, you're funny? And like, you after, have that same reaction yeah, about the both of them. After Cassie David dated Ariana Grande. Right, yes. Famous. And, famously. Yes. And then he dated, um. Kate Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale. Then he dated uh, Margaret Qualley, Andy McDowell's daughter, and now is reportedly linked to Kaya Gerber, Cindy Crawford's daughter. Like I said on Twitter, get away from her. Get a job. I mean, I've switched sides here. I think a couple of episodes ago, I was defending Pete Davidson because he's gone through some things, but at this Oh, please. Going through things doesn't give you fucking carte blanche to be a weirdo. You're right. In this way. You're absolutely right. So, for me at least- This is unfun weirdo shit. This decade- that couple, for the six months or less that they lasted together. I mean, I have to say, I was riveted. Riveted is is, is one the of many The most words. interesting thing he's ever done is get dumped by Ariana Grande on a public platform after she basically, like, added a bunch of songs on Sweetener that were all about how great he was. I mean, amazing. Amazing. After Grande broke up with her long-term boyfriend, Mac Miller, the two began dating, he, he by two, I mean, Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande. 
and would later very quickly get engaged after a few months and would subsequently break off the engagement in October of 2018. Unfortunately, during her engagement, Mac Miller passed away a few months later after having dealt with addiction for a long time and died from an accidental drug overdose due to that drug dealer, cocaine and alcohol was what they found. That drug dealer is now arrested and being charged. So there is the small victory. Fentanyl sucks. Opioids are horrible. And don't deal fucked up shit to people, you piece of shit. Seriously. On top of all that, a year prior, there was an act of terrorism at one of her shows in Manchester. You want to talk about someone going through something. I mean, she, this girl, for being 25, or you know, just, like, having gone through the ringer. Like, I I cannot imagine having two years of just horrible things. Grande explained in an interview that thank you, next, was actually a phrase that she and one of her singer, like, songwriter friends used uh, in reference to just, like, anything, really. Like, just thank you, next. In the first verse, I appreciate she she just lays it on you, all the honesty, and gives you all the names, gives you a list of people of her famous exes on the table in the first verse. Thought I'd end up with Sean, Big Sean, but he wasn't a match. Wrote some songs about Ricky, Ricky Alvarez. Now I listen and laugh. Even almost got married. And for Pete, Pete Davidson, I'm thankful. Wish I could say thank you to Malcolm, Mac Miller, because he was an angel. But also, I mean, she writes, though, in the music video that Big Sean can still get it. And she is correct. Yes. He, he can and he has. He can and he will and he continues to. He continues to. She apparently recorded several versions of the song due to her uncertainty of her relationship with Davidson. <laughs> Sorry, which, like, like, as in she recorded the song while they were still together, but she was, they were going through some tough times at that point already. So that says a lot oh, to me. Oh, she was, she definitely had her mind made up at a certain point. But I have to say, it came out to be one of the best, here's what happened, and I'm going to focus on myself now, and I love myself. It's all very Carly Rae Jepsen, and I appreciate it. It's that. also kind of what Nice For What kind of wanted to do, but yes. because a man was doing it, it kind of came across as inauthentic. It really did, and I think with Ariana, what's in, with that and just like it being released at such a perfect time, it worked really well. Of course, the lyrics, one taught me love, one taught me patience, and what taught me pain inspired one of the greatest Twitter memes of all time. I just, I laughed four days at all the tweets people came up with. Music video, of course, is perfect. Directed by... The Hannah, Hannah Lux Davies? Yes. Hannah Lux Davies. And it references Mean Girls, 13 Going on 30, Bring It On, okay, and so- Legally Blonde, and also features Jennifer Coolidge in one scene, which Ariana Grande can perfectly imitate if you've ever seen her on a late night show. So I need to complain a little bit about this music video, which I found to, it needed to focus. Okay. I feel like the 13 going on 30 was maybe a bridge too far. Yeah. I thought that if she just went full out with Legally Blonde or full out with Mean Girls, it would have been way more fun. Or if she maybe just blended the two a little bit more seamlessly. But it really just felt like a younger millennial or is she Gen Z, I forget, just finally watching Mean Girls Legally Blonde for the first time, which she admits that she has, in addition to First Wives Club, which she did that performance on Ellen where her and her friends dressed up like First Wives Club, and I fucking died. I thought that was hilarious. I did, too. I Great. mentioned it in my notes. But I just didn't want... The music video just needed a little bit of focus. I just felt like all, all the references kind of didn't quite gel the way I wanted them to. And I just wish she just went full-on Legally Blonde drag or full-on Mean Girls drag. And I'll never forget that moment when Lindsay Lohan was being interviewed by Jonathan Bennett <laughs> during an after show after her Lindsay Lohan Beach Club. And she basically turns and was like, Ariana Grande never called me to be in the music video. And he was like, uh, we're going to throw it to a commercial. 
Lindsay. Oh, it was so good. But yeah, no, she did not call you Lindsay. No, no. Oh, Hannah Lex Davies also has directed the music videos for Bang Bang, which is also features Grande as well as Jesse J and Nicki Minaj. Jesse J's with- best song. It really is. But you know what? She also she wrote Party in the USA. Jesse J paid her bills for many years by writing songs for Miley Cyrus. I mean, Jesse J won like some X Factor in China because she does have an undeniably great voice, but for whatever reason, she doesn't break through she in the not U.S. Broken through. No. I mean, she can date Channing Tatum, bless her heart, as long as she wants, but it's not going to launch her career. Wow, she's not going to get like the lead single on Twenty Four Jump Street or whatever. That is probably true. Um, <laughs> I know it's true. I mean, she's is Ariana calling her for the Charlie's Angels soundtrack? No, I don't think so. No. She's also, so Hannah Lex Davies has also directed music videos for Ariana Grande's uh, Into You, Side by Side, and Seven Rings. Obviously, as we talked about, the message in this song works really well for her given the time it was released. Appreciated, of course, the First Wives Club uh, performance on The Ellen Show. And honestly, I'm just a fan of Ariana. Sometimes I can't understand a word she sings, but... The mumble chanteuse. She's wonderful, though. I think she's a great voice. Uh, I really enjoy her music. Her albums are fun to listen to. That's that. She truly has gone through a lot. Yeah. She is a talented singer and songwriter. She is seems like a fun and nice person. And I do appreciate how she has a huge platform and she's very open about mental health. Yes. And I think that she's overall, I mean, for a Disney person, she really has come a long way without any sort of like major gaps on like, you know, like a, like a Miley Cyrus kind of person where right. you're just like cringing. And maybe if you cringed a little bit through the Pete Davidson thing, I think we would forgive her a quickie engagement after all of the shit that she's been through. For sure. And also. And I, even though she does some like questionable spray tan and yeah, sort of like racial like, ambiguity, yes. nobody is perfect. Nobody's and perfect. although that is, again, questionable slot questionable too problematic i do feel like it's something that she'll eventually grow out of and learn a little bit from because she is still really young she is and she's been around for a really long time yes final thing she like us is a celine stan does a perfect celine dion impression and has even like put up videos on instagram of herself as a little girl like singing along to celine dion tapes so i stan her because of that, on top of everything else. Doesn't she have a picture also with her as a child with Blake Lively dressed up as Baby Spice? Potentially. Is that her? I so don't know. It's some child star. I met Blake Lively at a Spice Girls concert and Blake Lively was dressed as Baby Spice. I feel like 96.9% sure that it's her. Could be someone else. I picked number 33, LCD Sound Systems, Dance Yourself Clean. This is the opener on the band's third album, This Is Happening, which was released in May of 2010. LCD Sound System, of course, was founded in 2002 by James Burphy, and the band's current lineup consists of him, Nancy Wong, uh, Pat Mahoney, Gavin Raina Russum, Tyler Pope, Al Doyle, Matt Thornley, and Corey Ritchie. A lot of people. In February of 20... They're like broken social scene where there's like 22 members. And people coming in and out. Yeah, exactly. It's like the Brooklyn... It's the Brooklyn... Broken social scene. It's it's also a (laughs) co-op. People just pop in and out. And it's like incredible i mean it's just like and i remember watching their their madison square garden concert like shut up and play the hits and uh yeah just a lot of in and out i saw them close coachella and there were like 15 people on stage i'm like all i i only recognize two of you yeah i what what else to say about this song i mean i'll go into the to the later what what happened after they released this album but i still love this song it's great Alex, our dear friend, will play this song whenever we're at a bar and there's a jukebox. It's always one of her mainstays. It's a great song. I think what's interesting is I thought of this album as what was going to be LCD's Sound System's last album. This came out right around the time I graduated college, so I listened to this album a lot. 
I also saw them in their following tour after that. Uh, this was before they announced they were breaking up, and I really enjoyed myself at their show. I saw them at the Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland in fall of 2010. But in February of 2011, they would announce that they were going to split. And it was made final with a large farewell concert at Madison Square Garden on April 2nd, 2011. This concert is the focal point of the documentary Shut Up and Play the Hits. And the band would later go on and get back together and release an album in 2017. This is happening as the album was recorded in the mansion in Laurel Canyon, which is the recording studio Rick Rubin owned for many years, where they recorded Red Hot Chili Peppers, mm. your favorite, Ugh. Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And you can Ugh. see that in that there's there's a documentary of them recording of that album. But it was claimed that Harry Houdini had lived in this mansion at one point. Oh my god, I know exactly what yes. house they're talking about. Yes, and it's not true. Apparently the house that once stood there has since burned down, and they re- there's also, in, like, there's also a tale. Like, there's Errol like a, Flynn lived there at one there's point. There's a story about how that house is haunted. Yes, so all of them, like, uh, their Slipknot released an album there or recorded <laughs> an album there. But all these people, like, talk about Well, now it's hauntings. definitely haunted yes. if Slipknot was there. System of a Down also reported. Another haunted yep, band. Audio slave, all you're doing is Lincoln supporting Park, my theory here by telling. <laughs> definitely haunted with an STD. <laughs> Thanks to Maroon 5. Um, so anyway, all of these, all, all of these artists who have recorded there have claimed that the, the place felt haunted. Spooky! But that's all I really have to say. I feel like I should have more about this song, and I don't, um, it's just a great song and a great I album. think they're similar to Spoon in the sense that they're yeah. a workhorse band that they have been are, together for fucking ever. You're absolutely ever. right. Like, I've seen them There's nothing twice. really that interesting to say no. other than, like, they're great! No, I mean, that's... They're yeah, the Christopher they're Guest of bands. They're the Christopher Guest of bands. They showed up on a whole lot of soundtracks in the mid-2000s. I know of them because of the OC soundtrack, like, <laughs> let's be honest. And uh, that song Daft Punk is playing at my house. And, yeah. I think that song was put on a mixtape given to me, and that was the first time I ever heard LCD Sound System. Yeah. So I liked Daft Punk. I was like, oh, what a funny song. And then went on LimeWire and, like... Looked up more. Did you start laughing like a Visco girl? That sounded like the. That's yeah. That's all. That's me typing. <laughs> You're you when you type, it sounds like a Visco girl laughing. It does, yes, because <laughs> I apparently leave my keyboard sounds on now. But that's all I have to say. My next pick is a number five. So you have. Oh great! Your turn. Oh, it's my turn for two whole songs. So I hope you're ready for number thirty. Cardi B's Bodak Yellow from uh. 2017. I want to talk about Bodak Yellow mostly because I'm fascinated about how it blew up. But a bit of background per Naomi Zeichner's blurb in Pitchfork. In early 2017, a few Cardi B songs had landed well enough for her to lock a BET Awards nomination and a magazine cover. But she needed more music by summer to take full advantage of all of those looks. It was released in June with a little initial promotion while Cardi showed up for Culture's early adopters at queer parties and southern clubs. By July, it was a certifiable radio hit. In August, all kinds of fans knew all the words. And in September, it was a certified smash, unseating Taylor Swift's number one on the Billboard Hot 100, making Cardi the first woman solo rapper to hit that peak in 19 years. Her victory was genuinely from the ground up and purely people-driven. That it was possible or even inevitable and a precursor for even more success to come, still feels triumphant. And I have to agree. I mean, Cardi continues to 
only make gold records. I think – I forget what song it's on, but she talks about shooting out gold records, and she's totally fucking right. Or grabbing coins like Mario. She's still doing all of that. So Bodak Yellow, alternately titled Bodak Yellow Money Moves, which, like, nobody calls it that, sweetie, is the major label debut and single for Cardi B. Written and recorded by Cardi herself and produced by Jay White Did It and Laquan Green with additional songwriting by Clenord Raphael and Jordan Thorpe. It was released on June 16th, 2017 by Atlantic, and it was the lead single from uh, Invasion of Privacy, which is interesting because I think maybe this is a little bit of like revisionist history. So I remember this was like essentially just released as a single. As somebody who followed Cardi on Instagram and knew of her from Love and Hip Hop from way before, it was released as sort of like a single, like a mixtape track. Like it wasn't yeah. officially a part of anything, and I felt no. like it was absorbed onto Invasion, Invasion of Privacy. Of privacy. Yes. I would agree. Like, and I wasn't even that aware of Cardi B until Bodak Yellow, and I feel like that song existed for like six or nine months before Invasion of Privacy had even been announced. Yes, I would totally agree with that. And then, it, especially when you listen to Invasion of Privacy, it does, it doesn't fit. It, it's like a lot of Invasion of Privacy feels very polished. It feels very finished. Right. It's an amazing rap album. It and, is. and it's one of those like rare feats of being like a no skips album. But Bodak Yellow definitely sticks out as something that's a little bit rougher, if that makes any sense. And, and not even in terms of production value, just like from her raps. I don't know. It just doesn't quite fit with the whole album, I think. So I feel like there's a little bit of a, oh, we just slotted it in there. And like, we're now we're claiming it because that's just what Atlanta's going to want to do so that they can recoup all the money. The song was influenced by and is an reinterpretation of Kodak Black's song, No Flockin', and it topped the Billboard charts for three consecutive weeks, making her the fifth female rapper to ever leave the chart and then the second to do so with a solo song following Lauryn Hill's doo-wop that thing. The accompanying music video was also shot in Dubai. I don't know why I put that on the same line. That's a little bit of a fuck up on my part. <laughs> Bodak Yellow received nominations for Best Rap Performance and Best Rap Song at the Grammys and won Single of the Year at the 2017 BET Awards, the very one that she had to make more music in order to perform at. And it was also won Favorite Rap Slash Hip Hop Song at the 2018 AMAs. Kodak Black later released a remix of Bodak Yellow, but nobody gives a shit about that. Bodak Yellow is Cardi B's first true hit, but true heads know her either from Instagram, where before she blew up as a rapper, she was best known for her funny videos where she told her followers stories about her life and her job as a stripper, or you know her from Love and Hip Hop, which is where that line about how she got a bag and fixed her teeth, she got made fun of so badly on her first season in Love and Hip Hop about her smile that she worked hard to make a bunch of money to get new teeth. And let me tell you, like, teeth shit is very not cheap at all. So no, she... I'm about to get a cavity filled this Oh my god, week. I'm putting off, putting off, getting a fucking root canal because I'm like, I don't want to pay any of this fucking money, but I need it. Fuck dentistry. Like, people are like, oh, you're afraid of the dentist. I'm like, yes, I'm afraid for my wallet, not for my personal self. No, I don't no, give no, a yeah, fuck. I can take the pain. Exactly. But not the, the financial, financial pain. pain is like a totally uh, different story. It's like they're on par with fucking Sally Mae over here trying to take your money. Anyway, no female rapper has moved as quickly from street hit to chart chopper in such an assertive way before Cardi B. Well, I mean, maybe little Kim. That's like, it, but it had been such a long time, and female rappers are so few and far between, unfortunately, because it's such a competitive yeah. field, and it's even more competitive for women, as evidenced by her new show, Rhythm and Flow. The success of Bodak Yellow most closely parallels her male equivalent, Viral Power, on the same level as Ray Shermurda's Black Beatles and her own husband's band, Migos, Bad and Bougie. 
But Agello is a great song. I feel like it's the first win for Cardi in the sense that she got a lot of shit when she was on Love and Hip Hop as just being like a groupie or an op, again, as she name checks in her own song, that she can't rap, that she's not good at it, that she has ghostwriters, that she's this, that, and the other thing. I felt like Bodak Yellow, even though she had had several mixtapes up until that point, was the first time everybody shut the fuck up and actually took her seriously. And I think Cardi is such a huge success story. She's had a crazy ride since 2017. She's won Grammys. She won Best Rap Album for Invasion of Privacy. She's made so much money. She's had great endorsement deals. Her Fashion Nova line sold out. And I just think it's just the beginning. And I think that she's really, I think she's a lot smarter than people give her credit for. She's very smart. She actually has talked about policy and like talk and like has had conversations. I mean, she's a Bernie, like, she's yeah, a Bernie bro. She's, a Bernie bro, but she's like, had a combo with Bernie Sanders. She talks about how much she loves Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, she's, she, she's she a knows really. She shit about U.S. history and everything like that. In fact, like she, her history teacher from Brooklyn, I'm pretty sure. Yes. Like from growing up was like, yeah, no, she was one of the smartest people in my class. She's a very smart person. I just think that people don't give her enough credit. And maybe one day she'll be taken seriously. But I hope not because I think that she's the type of person that when you underestimate her, she loves to prove you wrong. I am such a fan. I enjoy her Instagram. I think she's funny. And I just, I'm always appreciative of people who are just themselves and like unabashedly so. And that's someone, I, that's what I see in Cardi B. And I've always appreciated her for that. All right. My next hit is number 28. Beyonce's Countdown from 2011. It's a favorite Beyonce song off mm. of a certifiable No Skips album for... The best. That's my favorite. I love Countdown so much, I choreographed a dance to it for my wedding. That's how much I love Countdown. It's, there's just something about it. But I'll let Allison P. Davies, a writer much better than I, say it better than I ever could. If being in love has a sound, it's a euphoric vocal run that opens Beyonce's Countdown. This is an effusive ode to her broken-in, ride-or-die, monogamous romance and a swaggy reminder of exactly what will happen to him if he ever messes around. Countdown walks so that Lemonade could enter couples therapy and run. Countdown is from Beyonce's fourth studio album, Form, and it's written by Bay, Terius Nash, Shay Taylor, Esther Dean, Canyon Lamb, Julie Frost, Michael Blevins, Nathan Morris, and Wanda Morris. Wait. <clears throat> yes? The Boys to Men members got writer credits because, like, Wanya Mo- Morris, I believe, is a member of Nate Nash. Yeah. It depends. I mean, it doesn't say it outright. It just listed everybody. I'm sure that it's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Exactly what's happening because when you sample, it depends on what kind of deal your yes. publisher strikes for you. Do you get actual credit? And that makes sense because Michael Bivens was a member of Belle Biv DeVoe New Edition. Mm-hmm. So if, I don't – I think – contributing to like the sample but we're including everybody in here but i'm also not really quite sure who the original ones are probably who produced it which is beyonce shay taylor and canyon lamb who uh canyon lamb is the one who found the boys to men sample that they ultimately used for it mm. the song's conception was brought about by Knowles wanting to mix musical styles of the 90s with the 1970s and it was sent to the radio on october 4th 2011 as the fifth single from four features a sample of uh aha uh-huh. boys to men countdown incorporates aspects of hip-hop funk reggae and world music it sort of reminds me a little bit of bootylicious in the sense that she uses a sample that's maybe not widely known and uses it in such a creative way that she makes the song now inextricably linked to her forever you cannot yeah. listen to that boys to men song without thinking about countdown Just like stevie next edge of 17 exactly whenever i hear that riff no matter despite the fact that i heard that song before i ever heard bootylicious i cannot not picture 
Beyonce saying, Kelly, can you handle it? Like, that's yeah. all I can think about when I'm listening to that riff, and that's why I can't really listen to Edge of Seventeen anymore. Lyrically, the female protagonist delivers a message of monogamy to her lover and celebrates self-worthiness as well as appreciating who she's having this monogamous relationship with. Countdown peaked at number 71 on the Billboard Hot 100. It also peaked at number 12 on the Billboard Hot R&B Hip Hop Songs chart and number one on the U.S. Hot Dance Club Song chart. I mean, so many like little subcharts that are so bizarre. The song has also been certified gold. Adria Petty directed the music video, which was recorded while Beyonce was pregnant in August of 2011. The music video has Beyonce in a mix of classic and modern dances with references to Audrey Hepburn's funny face. But like a lot of Beyonce music videos, the video faced controversy for the use of the choreography from Anne Teresa de Charismaker's 1983 ballet, Rosas Dance Rosas. I don't know. I feel like every Beyonce music video faces some yeah. sort of choreography controversy. I I don't understand. The ladies was was it was Bob Fosse and like but sure, but, but it's, it's like always it's, done so well. I, I but I also feel like these controversies always kind of blow over in a very Beyonce sure. like fashion. In June, Party and Countdown leaked online, followed by the whole album three weeks prior to its official release on June twenty eighth, two thousand eleven. This was followed by a cease and desist notice by Beyonce's legal team, obviously. Ivy Park coming for your fucking ass and all of your money, who forced multiple media sites to remove the download links to the songs. Eventually, the songs from 4 that got leaked were available to listen to in, in full on Beyonce's official website and was paired with an accompanying photo spread from the album's packaging. So, like Beyonce always does, she comes through with a perfect way to swerve on people trying to take her coin before she's ready to give it to them. Boys to Men were one of the first ones to bring Destiny's Child on tour, so this is a real full circle moment. When Canyon Lamb started working on the Boys to Men sample, he commented later on, obviously, that it starts with a, a countdown of 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and I thought, wow, this could be something, just the countdown itself. Once the countdown was in the computer, he slightly increased the pace at which it was played and then just added some drum taps on top and started to create a beat. So that was sort of like the backbone of Countdown. Countdown is a perfect is a perfect love song. All of four is amazing. You could pick any song. Love on top is my favorite Beyonce song of all time. I love on top. End of time. Yes. Yeah, because I love when Beyonce mixes a little bit of disco with her songs. I think that she has such like a lovely voice that's very suited to it in a kind of Donna Summery fashion. For sure. But Countdown is beautiful. It's a great song. Four is an impeccable album. Yes, formation. Everybody loves it. Yes. Self-titled is also great, but four, I feel like, is her most romantic, over-the-top, and I Care is also great. Just non-stop. Non-stop songs. Party is also wonderful. Go listen to four. I'm going to go listen to it when we're done. Yes. What's your next? Number five, Frank okay. Ocean, Thinking About You, and this is my last of oh, Okay, picks. perfect. This is the lead single off of Ocean's debut album, Channel Orange, which was released, or this song was originally released on his Tumblr in 2011. <laughs> Gotta love a Tumblr tie-in. Yes. The song was originally going to be a song for Bridget Kelly's debut album, but Ocean ended up leaking his demo version, sent to Kelly and her team on his Tumblr on July 28, 2011, and then immediately took it off. Kelly had already performed a version of this song. She would release the song on her debut EP, but would retitle it as Thinking About Forever because the Frank Ocean version became so famous. On March 8, 2012, a remastered version of the song premiered on iHeartRadio, intended to be the lead single off of Ocean's debut album. 
and it was confirmed that it would appear on that album and that which uh, was released on July 17th, 2012. And the version of the track eventually featured on the album was remodified for a second time. So there was the original one that was the track that they had sent to Bridget Kelly's team. Then there was the second one from iHeartRadio, and then the final one that ended up on the album. And the song was released to mainstream radio on January 29th, uh, 2013. Kelly was fine with what happened, but was not happy that people thought that she was covering Frank Ocean's song since he had intended to write it for her. But Ocean has since said that that song was extremely personal for him, and that is why he chose it to release it as a single. This song and the album Channel Orange, I mean, it's just like one of the most critically acclaimed debut albums of the last 10, 15 years. Um, I think it's fantastic. Rolling Stone named this song the best, fourth best song of 2012 and called it the year's deepest love song that won us all. Uh, Complex ranked it as their fourth best as well. Um, Frank Ocean's, this, I mean, this album would go on to receive all sorts of accolades. Beyonce apparently cried the first time she listened to this song and wrote Ocean a poem of support, which is the most beautiful thing ever. Um, the Village Voices Paz and Jop annual critics poll ranked this song at number four in their best music of 2012. And what's really important to know about the song is that this single was released um, not, sh not very far after Frank Ocean came out. He came out in a very personal letter that he published on his Tumblr. Um, and it was a pretty big deal at the time because there aren't that many R&B hip-hop artists that are out, and Frank Ocean was very open about this um, with this letter. And a lot of people took those lyrics after that thinking, you know, maybe this was him really talking about, you know, one of the first sexual experiences that he had with a man, especially since this song had been intended to be sung by Bridget Kelly about a man. Looking back, I just, this album's fantastic. I really love Frank Ocean. I cannot wait for his next album to be released next year. Blonde is a great album as well. And that's all I really have to say about that. Okay, my very last pick is number three, Robin's Dancing on My Own from 2010. Yay! The most cheerful crying in the club song there is. Dancing on My Own manages a dance floor rump shaker with emotionally heart-wrenching lyrics. You Swedish genius. Are you saying girl or guy? Who cares? Gender's dead. This song is brilliant in its, in, in its ambiguity by allowing you to insert yourself into the song and the story. Whether you're the, whether you're the guy or gal crying in the corner or the treacherous ex or the new love in their life, I'm in the corner. Why can't you see me? Oh... Dancing on My Own is off of Robin's fifth studio album, Body Talk Part 1. The song was written and produced by Robin and Patrick Berger, again, from Icona Pop, which I talked about earlier, 197. He's got two entries, maybe more, I don't know. And I was, um, and Dancing on My Own was inspired by disco anthems by Ultravox, Sylvester, and Donna Summer, or as Robin said, gay cry anthems, I believe. Something to that effect. I just butchered that. <laughs> I meant to, like, incorporate it, and then I just deleted it anyway. It was a lead single and was released on June 1st of 2010 in Sweden and the United States. On the face of it, this is simply an electronic dance pop ballad that speaks of a female or male protagonist who is dancing alone in the club and watching their ex-lover with another person. But Dancing on My Own has been described more accurately as a heartbreak anthem. In an interview with Pitchfork, Robin further elaborated on the song's theme saying, People have so many expectations when they go out, so many wishes about what their night is going to be. If they're going to meet that person, have a fun time with their friends, have a good high, hear good music. 
people get drunk and turn into themselves in a way and they go to experience some kind of emotion. But it's not always about fun. There's a destructive side to it. But I'm more into the empowerment of going out because it's always been the place where I could be myself and get inspired. Even if I'm sad, dancing is a way to let stuff out, which like fucking word. It became Robin's first and number one in her native country. The song also reached the top 10 in Denmark, Norway, and the UK. In the United States, the song managed to reach number three on the Hot Dance Club Songs chart. Dancing on My Own was nominated for a Grammy for Best Dance Recording. The song peaked at number 22 on the European Hot 100 chart, becoming her highest peaking song. On the UK Singles chart, it debuted and peaked at number 8, which was also Robin's best charting single in the country since With Every Heartbeat in 2007. And in the States, Dancing on My Own debuted at number 40 on the Hot Club songs and reached its peak of number 3 and stayed there for two weeks in July of 2010. Nate Sloan, a musicologist at the University of Southern California, I should have just said USC, don't know why, and the host of music podcast Switched on Pop, says the miracle of the lyrics is the, is their sparseness, which is another theme that we've talked about, about creating a successful pop song. He goes on to say, there's like six seconds of silence between each line in the verse, which is not a lot of time in the abstract, but in a pop song that's like eons. That's correct. And this is because Robin wants you to live in that space. She wants you to give she wants to give you time to insert your emotions and your stories and your feelings into the spaces in between those lines. You're not being the smartest person on the planet, Sloan goes on to say, unpacking the words. You're not being the nicest, you're not being the best, you're just a loser and that's fine. And I think that's ultimately what people kind of connect to. It's like sure. everybody's been that fucking sad sack. Patrick Berger, who co-wrote and produced the song with Robin Robin says that the lyrics were the hardest part. The chords in the track and the melody all came together pretty quickly, but every single word took its time. He goes on to explain, I think we spent like a couple of days on each line. I remember we were texting each other for like weeks and weeks about lines. I have a notebook full of lyrics that ended up being scrapped. The result is only around 130 words with a simple accessible story. A person ends up at the same club as their ex. They see each other across the floor dancing with somebody new, they're hurt, but they keep dancing over a full floor of stiletto heels and broken bottles. Drum break, repeat. I mean, I think Dancing on My Own is one of those, like, again, perfect pop songs that you could put on at any point in time at a wedding, at a funeral, which there was an article that I read where a DJ who does weddings talked about how it always gets everybody on the floor. And then also a woman whose spouse tragically died of brain cancer and how they loved Robin and she played this at his funeral. Even before the famous NYC Subway video from this year, it dawned on me that the song is not only universally beloved, but it's one of those magical songs where somehow everyone knows the lyrics. Like, the collective unconscious, our hive mind, look at it. At a Killing My Lobster Giving Tuesday event a few years ago, which, if you're financially able, December 2nd is our Giving Tuesday. Open your hearts and wallets to sketch comedy that is also non-profit. <laughs> Anyway, we do like a Jerry Lewis-style type telethon, and because we're all that weird cousin who used to make you put on plays during family functions, we of course had like a karaoke machine this year. Someone, I think Meg Hayes, chose Dancing on My Own, and then all of a sudden, ten of us bum-rushed her to join in, and it was the first time that it suddenly dawned on me, wait, everybody knows all of the words of this song too? It's also a cool-down song in one of the dance classes that I take, and one woman always says that the song always makes her so sad, but... I beg to differ. I feel like it's a song about loneliness, but the second that you hear it, you feel less alone. Even if you're the only one sing, shouting, crying the lyrics by yourself. 
it's like a cathartic moment as your dance it's like a cathartic dance i just feel like i'm in the corner why can't you see me is just it's like a universal feeling yes held by all it's an equalizer much like new year's eve plans or other unpleasant tasks that all people have to deal with everybody has felt those losery feelings in dancing on my own but it does make you feel like in any given moment it can be there to comfort you when you're sad it can be there in a moment where you need to pretend like you're not sad or it can even make you feel better about yourself and your choices like yeah fuck you and your fucking ex that you're dancing with she sucks anyway so now that we have concluded all of our top eights, let's run through some of our honorable mentions. I did, one of mine was Adele rolling in the deep. Oh yeah, we did not get to that. Don't fuck with Adele because she's going to write the best breakup album about your sorry ass. Yeah. Uh, mine was Cupcake's Duck Duck Goose because head on the dick, duck, 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 goose. I don't really know what else to tell you. I love a song about sucking dick. It's really funny. <laughs> I did Drake, Hotline Bling. This inspired a plethora of memes, SNL parodies, even a tacky Christmas sweater. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot for bringing back Crosby sweaters. I went with Sierra's Ride featuring Ludacris because that song is really good. And I'll never forget, first time we watched this music video was at a friend's house. And one of our dude friends was like, oh my god, it's like really hot in here now. Like, I gotta go. We're like, oh my god. Didn't know. Sierra. It's another music video where Sierra shows off her impeccable dance skills and how... She'll always be number three through five to Beyonce. Sorry, Sierra. I love Sierra, too. I picked Lord Royals. Oh, my God. Fuck that fucking song. Listen, it was a fantastic song when it was initially released. I really liked it. it. I enjoyed it. Oh, my. I've always hated this fucking song. I always liked it. The fact that a high schooler wrote this song after seeing a picture of a Kansas City Royals player from a 1976 National Geographic. That's, and then wrote this song in 30 minutes is very good. The fact I'm that it, impressed. I'm sorry, for the reasons that you admire it or the reasons that I hate it, it sounds like it's written by a high schooler who wrote it in 30 minutes. Like, I'm not here, I'm not your fucking song professor. I don't want your fucking 11.58 p.m. homework. Go fuck yourself, Lord. But I'm not gonna, I will say, like, in terms of albums, that whole album, Pure Heroine's fine. I think Melodrama is a much better album. I don't know her. I'm going to go with someone that you also might not know, but who I fucking love and stan. Leaky Lee. Oh, I love her. Uh, not you in particular. I know you know who she is. I meant the greater you, uh, the yes, royal okay. you. The royal you. Um, I follow Rivers. I fucking love this song. I love the remix. I love So Sad and So Sexy. It's a fucking great album. It also speaks to everybody who's inner sad girl. I mean, if you're in there. I think she's great. She doesn't get en- she doesn't get enough of a do. It's just like Spoon. It's always nice to see her mentioned on these lists. Courtney Barnett, Avant Gardner. I gotta stand a song that details a near fatal asthma attack and the subsequent hospitalization and compares. And in this song, the singer compares herself to Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction. It's the most mundane song, almost described as disguised as a journal entry, and yet I love it. And I love Courtney Barnett. I fucking love this song. As someone with asthma, she spoke to things that I could not put words to. <laughs> and I really appreciate it. And I also really like Courtney Barnett. I like all of her stuff with Kurt Vile. I, I I love her sort of like laid back, kind of like, I want to say sloppy style, but that sounds like I'm daming her with fake praise. I think she's a great musician. I love I Courtney too. Barnett. Yeah. I will swerve the other way with a solo singer lady, Solange's Losing You, which is a great song. That's another great like crying at the club song. It's a catchy hook. You're dancing to it, and then you realize, like, the words are destroying you emotionally, and you're like, oh, just, yes, for sure, I'm losing you for good. 
Great song. Love Solange's solo work. And I like when she, just like her sister, blends in a little bit of disco with her voice because it just, like, lends so perfectly. I also picked another solo female, Angel Olsen, Shut Up, Kiss Me. I love a song that plays homage to 60s girl groups, and this song does a great job. Even the Pitchfork blurb mentions the Shangri-Las give them a great big kiss. as a great buildup, and it's a great dance party-worthy song. Oh, man. R.I.P. to this version of Kanye, because we'll never see it again. I picked Kanye West's Monster. I fucking love this song. I like the fact that he has, like, such a high caliber of rap artists on it, but this was the first time I was introduced to Nicki Minaj, and she absolutely fucking destroys this track. I forget who else is even on it. I'm like, yeah, there's Kanye at the beginning, and then Nicki closes it, and I don't really remember who's in the middle. I think maybe Big Sean. Doesn't really fucking matter. She goes ham on it, and I, I mean, I, my jaw hit the ground the first time I heard Nicki's verse, and that was when I immediately became obsessed with her. I was like, I need to know more. I need to listen to every song. It's a great track. And just, I'm a motherfucking monster. Like, I don't know how else you top that. Which you don't. You go fucking Jesus gospel shit now, apparently. I also picked another Solange song. I picked Cranes in the Sky. I absolutely love Solange. A Seat at the Table is a perfect album. It was probably my favorite album of 2016. Uh, Solange's voice on this track is soft and she barely belts. It's like such a contrast from um, her sister's voice. I love Beyonce's voice. Don't get me wrong. No, but, but you have to differentiate yourself if your sister is Beyonce. You, you can't, absolutely do. Even if you can do that, you shouldn't. And <laughs> it's it's so pretty, and it's such a minimal background track. Like, it's a bit of a drum. It's some strings, but it's a very basic mm. uh, song. And it was written by her and Raphael Sadiq. Um, oh, I didn't know that. I, I absolutely love Raphael Sadiq. He just released his first album in, like, a decade, and it's great. Um, and they wrote this song like eight years before the album even came out. Um, and it was the, in the aftermath of their breakup with the father of her child. Um, and they'd been together since she was like 17. Oh, right. Yeah. Anyway, it's a the child that she's pregnant with in the soldier music video. Yes. Um, which I always remember that when I found out that Solange was like only two years older than me, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. She got married and and had a kid at a pretty young age. Oh, I've fallen down that wiki hole. (laughs) Um, anyway, she's fantastic. I love this song. I love that. It's literally about the construction cranes in the sky. Just, it's part of a perfect album. Speaking of perfect albums, I picked every single night from Fiona Apple off of the idler wheel. I'm not saying the whole poem, not only because I didn't write it down, but because it's also fucking long. It's a great song from a returning legend. I saw her on this tour. She is amazing. I love Fiona Apple. Anytime she puts out music, it's great. I hope a little Nas X has paid her for the sample that he used. I love that she like hit up that random music writer and gave her like an impromptu interview. She's strange and wonderful, and Fiona Apple can literally do no wrong. I, she's been collaborating a bit with King Princess lately, which interesting. I, King Princess did a cover of "I Know." Oh right, and and, and it was it's featured. a great cover. It's a really beautiful. And cover. I usually roll my eyes at people trying to cover Fiona Apple, but that was one that I actually very much. Enjoyed. I think King Princess's voice is a lot like Fiona Apple's. It lends voice. itself well to mm-hmm. it. I don't have any other picks. Oh, okay. Well, then I have three more that I'm just going to quickly mention. Vampire Weekend's Hannah Hunt. It's a beautiful song off what I think is their best album. Azalea Banks's 212. She is problematic at best, but this song is undeniably Listen, great. That EP was fantastic. I, I, but I also cannot... 212, every time I put it yep. on, you cannot help but feel like you can't just stop. You start moving. You of can't course. stop. Yeah. And you just also turn into like 
a bad bitch. There is something about the beat that you're like, yeah, fuck you. I'm in the 212. I just love it. It's so good. So good. And every time I hear it, at the end of it, I get a little bit sad because then I remember, you know, this is it. The aftermath. <laughs> this is kind of yeah. it. And then lastly, Kendrick Lamar's DNA. That whole album, obviously, it won a Pulitzer, so it's a fucking great album. But DNA is a really amazing song. And every time you listen to it, you hear something different. Do you want to run through your staff picks? Yeah, and I'll just do them really quickly, all, all of them, I guess. Yes, you go, and then I'll go. Okay, basically, any song by Best Coast from that Crazy For You album should have been on this list, and it wasn't, and I'm really sad about that. Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Such uh, a surprise. Very big surprise that Sharon Jones wasn't featured, especially since she passed away in 2016 during that year. Everyone passed away. Um, anything, during the celebrity rapture. I would have put Over Everything by Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile from that Lotta Sea Lice album. That was one of my favorites this decade. I think that first song on the album is really beautiful. Kanye's Lost in the World. I think it's, it is my favorite Kanye song. I know they picked a few others for my beautiful dick, dark and twisted fantasy, but this should have been included in that list, I think, instead of some others. Kesha, praying, considering what this song came out of, she had been in an ongoing legal battle with Dr. Luke since 2014. Fuck him. Um, I believe that this song should have been recognized. Janelle Monet and Erica Badu's Queen, incredible. I love Janelle Monet. Maggie Rogers, Alaska, as we've talked about, Pharrell Tears, all of them. You, those were our tears. Um, the fact that a college kid put that song together is just See, by funny. contrast, there is a better young person's song coming out that's, like, thoughtful and good, whatever. For Fuck sure. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Styles, Sign of the Times. I just love that first debut album. Um, I think he proved that he was so much more than just another former boy band member, but very different from, like, a Timberlake type. He's a really great songwriter. I'm just um, curious to see what's going to happen to any of these One Direction kids, because I feel like... They haven't really, even Harry Styles, I felt like, had a mild blow up. Like, it wasn't as big as I was anticipating. He's doing, he's very critically acclaimed. Like, there's definitely the former One Direction fans that are his stands, and I'm a big fan of his. I guess I'm, I expected him to kind of, like you said, go the more Justin Timberlake route, I suppose. And so I'm just surprised, because, like, Zayn sort of, like, I don't know what's yeah. going on there. The it's, other one, Tomlinson, Lewis. Lewis, and then Niall and all the, yeah. One of them had a baby with Cheryl. Like, yeah. I mean, there's, like, that's a whole... We'll see. I feel like 1D's story is obviously not done yet. I'm no. interested to see where their careers go. For, for sure. My final song for this list is Casey Musgraves' Rainbow because it always makes me cry. Okay. My staff picks. I was very surprised that Work From Home by Fifth Harmony wasn't on there because it's a bop and so is That's My Girl and so is Down. There yeah. there are a lot of Fifth Harmony songs that are very good. Really good Capital ones. V, very. Capital G, good pop songs that are just solid. I mean, it's fucking Simon Cowell. It's Simon Cowell for fuck's sake. How do you get any more bulletproof than that? Um, another surprise that Tessellate or basically anything off of Alt-J's Awesome Wave didn't make it. Breeze Blocks is amazing. That song always makes me tear up. Matilda's also a great song. What the fuck? They had a different Carly Rae Jepsen song, which I politely refuse. Cut to the Feeling, I think, is the song that should have been included. Is that on Emotion? Yes. Yes. They had a different song from Emotion that I don't like as much. Run Away With Me. Which I think is fine, but I think Cut to the Feeling. I think you're right. It's a much better song. It's a more of like a dancing on my own kind of like that clap. Well, it gives us... That starts in the beginning is so catchy. It's the core of Carly Rae Jepsen right there. It really is. It is the Carly Rae Jepsen thesis statement. Yeah. Read You, Wrote You, which was by RuPaul All-Stars, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars 2. I don't know. Just listen to the song. It's fucking great. It's some of the best rap lyrics. Also, I quoted some of this in my own wedding vows. That's how good it is. 
Speaking of which, Call Me Mother by RuPaul, a return to club dance hits from RuPaul, just a certifiable bop as well. Phone or Excuse Me by Lizzo, or quite frankly, anything by Lizzo. Anything. Truth Hurts, which had sort of a strange rise to fame in a lot of ways that some of these other songs that they had mentioned where like it hit later on in life or because it was featured on Girls or whatever. I mean, in this instance, Truth Hurts was in that Gina Rodriguez movie. Oh, yeah. um, Something great, right? Yes, I guess so. Um, And that's kind of like what led it to start blowing up. But I was just really surprised. Like Phone and Excuse Me or anything, or Coconut Oil, anything off of her EP... You could have been, I mean, great. great songs. I, again, respectfully disagree with some of the Rihanna choices. I think We Found Love is a great one, but I also felt like work was maybe a miss and that they could yeah. have picked something else and I would have picked Sex With Me. But we have an embarrassment of riches between Loud, Talk That Talk, Unapologetic, and Auntie. And they just picked work with Drake. I just felt like, what, does Drake own a fucking portion of Pitchfork? What the fuck is happening? He just might. Like Ice Cream by Divine Fitz. This was a surprise because it's, like, one of those things that music critics love, which is, like, a super group because it's Wolf Parade and Spoon, and it's also a perfect summer song, so I don't understand how that didn't get on there. And and similarly, On the Regular by Shamir, that was, like, a super catchy pop indie hit that was beloved by critics all over. It was all over the place for the longest time. It's in, like, a Samsung Galaxy commercial. Didn't make the cut. Similarly surprised. Britney Spears. Not a single fucking Britney Spears song. Which is ridiculous. Till the World Ends. Yeah, Till the World Ends is what I picked, but you could have picked anything. I think Slumber Party with Tanashi is also great. I think Make Me with, even though I fucking hate Gerald, G-Eazy, I think is also a really good song. She's got, she had three fucking albums in the 2010s. I don't understand how zero songs made it on there. Another artist that I couldn't believe wasn't featured at all was also Arctic Monkeys. Why Do You Only Call Me When You're High is just one of many songs they could have picked. That was just something that I picked. And then, again, another thing that... Uh, critic pandering. Not a single thing from Slater Kinney, which was, like, a huge deal when they got back together. No Cities to Love was just, again, one song off of any of the songs that they've released in the uh, between their two albums two that have been albums great. in this decade, yeah. Don't understand. Alabama Shakes, also not featured. Sound and Color would have been my pick. I would have... My Casey Musgraves pick is Lonely Weekend. I think that's great. And then to round out the rappers... Again, a critic, critically beloved rapper is J. Cole. Not a single J. Cole song, especially when K.O.D. came out last year. Like, that did really well. Everybody loved it. It was like a surprise hit. And even before that, his Forest Hills Drive album that came out in conjunction with his HBO documentary, which, like, really endeared him to me as, like, a rapper. I thought anything off that could have made it. I mean, I guess Get Off My Dick might not make it on there, but I thought apparently would have been a good choice. <clears throat> and then lastly... Wow by Beck. Again, a bop from our Reformed Scientology king. We didn't even get any Beck in there. There are just some strange choices that, you know, we could have done a little swapsies if we had maybe given it some more thought pitchfork. But that's why we have our own podcast, so that we can come on here and spew what we think it should have been. Exactly. Thank you for listening to the second season of Old Millennials. Yay! We will be back in 2020 at some point. Early 2020? Feb, February-ish. I don't know. That's This is exactly why you should follow us on Instagram. We are at The Old Millennials Pod, and we are also on Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. The easiest way to just know when we have new episodes out is to subscribe to this podcast feed. And if you like anything that you've ever listened to, a previous deep dive, this deep dive, any number of episodes, please share with your friends. And make sure that you rate and review us 
on iTunes because it helps other people find us. Yes, thank you to those of you who have written reviews. All three, all three of you, we see you. We see you, and we love you. And until next season, we will see you in the next decade. That's right. Goodbye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.